0: Good morning, Providence. Um, this morning's scripture is from Psalm forty thirty. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. This is God's word for God's people. Amen. You guys can be seated. I thought about this in the first service. It's just fun uh, this summer, uh, getting just different people in our church praying, writing those prayers, people reciting the scriptures. Uh, if you didn't know, we also have people that do a, a unique artwork for every single Psalm. And so uh, it's just a fun, fun summer. Uh, let's pray and then we'll get into that Psalm. Father, we are grateful uh, that we get to come to you today. As Ken just prayed, uh, wherever our hearts are at, wherever we walk into this room, um, you want to meet us in that space. Uh, As we come to these couple Psalms uh, over these last few weeks, uh, it's just such uh, an encouragement to be honest. Pray that we can do that today. I pray that you would offer us hope, especially for the one who is uh, down God, would you be with us uh, as we come to your word? Would you give us sharp minds and soft hearts as we look at this psalm? And would you lead us to a greater worship of you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, On June 19th, 1834, Charles Spurgeon was born. Uh, Some of you have probably heard that name before. Maybe you know some of his story uh, but Spurgeon was uh, saved and converted at the age of 15, uh, and he began preaching almost immediately, uh, which would become essentially what he's most well known for in Christian history. Uh, by the age of 19, he began to pastor what would be the most influential and largest church in all of London. Uh, His preaching ministry there would go on for almost 40 years and it would land him the nickname, the Prince of Preachers. Uh, he has, maybe if you've heard of him before, he he did tons of different ministries, ran schools and orphanages, pastored the largest church, wrote many books and commentaries. Uh, and his impact was not only massive in his day, but has continued on to this day. As a preacher, uh, he has influenced many, many different preachers even to this day, myself included. Um, but as is true with many different Christians, both today and of the past, the depth of his relationship with God and his effectiveness in ministry really came as a result of a life of deep suffering. You know, I think many, many Christians will not experience the amount of external gospel fruit that he did in his life. Like he is kind of one of a few that would experience so much fruit But simultaneously, there's very few Christians that will also experience the amount of pain and suffering that he did in his life either. Uh, Just a few things on him. Uh, Spurgeon married a woman named Susanna, uh, and she continued with him as a wife and ministry partner for the rest of his life. Um, But pretty early on in his ministry, she got kind of an unknown chronic illness that she suffered with from that day forward. Uh, One biographer said that she could often not travel more than a mile or two from her house without spending the next few days in intense pain at home. Uh, This meant that she could, for a lot of those years, not attend church. She couldn't even hear the Prince of Preachers, her own husband, preach to his congregation. And most days in her life were filled with pain and sorrow. And he became a caretaker for most of his life, caring for her. Now, not only did he care for her, but at the age of 33, he also uh, was diagnosed with kidney disease, and suffered from gout, which again, if you know my story, I find kind of odd comfort in uh, relating to that. Uh, And honestly, the kidney disease is the bigger thing that ended up eventually taking his life. But if you've ever, I don't know how many of you ever got gout or struggled with gout. It is an insane amount of pain. Like it doesn't feel like it should be. Oftentimes it's in like your big toe. It feels like you should be okay. You're not. Like it makes you feel like a baby. It's horrible. Um, But there were times where he tried to just kind of preach through. There would literally be weeks or months at a time where he could not preach preach. He couldn't even do his role because of the intense pain from gout. Uh, He wrote that at times he would quite literally preach on one leg to not stand on the other leg because he was in so much pain. Uh, But he tried to continue on and often he would just kind of get through it. And at uh, one point, he told a friend, uh, trying to justify why he was continuing to preach, even in the pain. He said that he didn't have gout in his tongue, and he was not aware that people preached with their legs. So he uh, would continue on, and he kept preaching. Uh, but it would be these physical ailments that, that plagued him for most of his life that would eventually take his life at only 57 Now, it wasn't only physical pain or the pain of his wife that he suffered, but he also struggled mightily for most of his life with serious bouts of deep depression. Uh, He considered this his greatest battle. And at one point he said depression was his worst feature. Uh, And he struggled so much because he knew the greatness of Christ. He knew the beauty of the gospel, yet for months at a time would suffer uh, without end with emotional and spiritual depression that seemed to cripple him. At one point he wrote in a letter, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, yet I knew not what I wept for. I don't know if some of you maybe can relate to those seasons of just darkness where they're just like the weight and the sadness and the brokenness just kind of like overcomes you. Now, I could go on and on about this man. There's much that's been written. There's highlights and lowlights in his life. But what I want us to see in his life is that he was a man who was fruitful in ministry for God. He, He loved and kind of would cling to Jesus for his life while also often being laid low, fighting for hope. You know, and I think actually, as we look at Psalm 42 and 43, last week and this week, um, he kind of epitomizes where this psalmist is. A man who continues to cling to God. He didn't abandon his faith. He didn't run from God. He, he was there while he was laid low in deep and dark moments. But the thing I want to look at today in Psalm 43 is that last piece. What does it look like to fight for hope in the midst of those dark places? when you're clinging to God, you, you know that he's there, but you don't feel it and you feel low, how do you still fight for hope? You know, I always ask the questions when I read stories like this, like how do men like Spurgeon endure? When it feels like life throws them one thing after another, how, how do you make it? How does a sufferer continue on in faith? And the question that I specifically often ask when I read biographies of people, or even for many of you, as you have gone through challenging times, the question that I'm always thinking is, where are their eyes? You know what I mean? I'm saying, what are they looking at? What are they focused on that allows them to endure? Because to actually get through the deepest and darkest moments of life, you have to get your eyes on something that gives you enough hope to keep moving forward. And I think Psalm 43 can help us answer that question. If you have a Bible, you can go there. Uh, What's interesting is that in in reality, Psalm 43 is not actually a whole separate psalm. Uh, It's really just the last stanza of Psalm 42. And so last week, as I was prepping for Psalm 42, I honestly considered do I just preach these two together? And I just thought it would be awkward to get to the end of our psalm series and only preach 149 psalms. So I decided to divvy them up. But besides just pragmatics. Um, Psalm 43, it, it does have a little bit different tone. It ends a little bit differently. I think if, if Psalm 42 gives us freedom to be honest with God in suffering, Psalm 43 gives us hope in God in the midst of suffering. And so uh, I do think for any of you, similar to last week, if you're kind of in this season right now, or there's just a wait There's a darkness, there's a depression, there's just uh, an ailment in your heart that is continued. Uh, I think Psalm 43 has a unique answer for hope. I think it can offer you a place to get your eyes on that might just help you endure. So let's look at this Psalm. Uh, It's short, we're gonna take it in two parts. Uh, So first, we're gonna kind of circle back around to an idea we talked about last week, which is the problem of exile, Okay, so that's gonna be the main issue that we're dealing with. And then on the back half, we're gonna see the psalmist's prayer for hope. All right, so let's look first at the problem of exile. We're gonna kind of reorient ourselves to where this psalmist is at. Let's look at verse one and two. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So similar to last week, the psalmist begins by essentially laying out the problem in his heart. This is the problem that he seems to face. And I know I said this a little bit last week, but I think one of the main things we as a people have to get from Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 is that if we want hope in God, we are going to have to be honest with God, okay? I think one of the main things that these two Psalms are pressing us to is a place of honesty. And I know from experience and and from knowing some of you, I know that it can be challenging at times because we can question, right? Like, should I, I mean, it feels like we're just complaining. Like, should I complain to God? Should I say these things to God? Is that not right? Should I just say that everything's okay? Like, is it okay to tell him that I feel like he's gone? Is it okay to say things that I know aren't true, but that I feel are true? And we can get really hesitant. And I think what these Psalms are saying is, if you want hope in the darkest moment, you actually need to have God meet you in those moments. And so I think these Psalms actually push us to a place of being honest about the challenges that we face. And this is what the Psalmist does to start. He starts by saying, God, will you vindicate me? Or will you bring justice to this situation? Uh, he's saying there's ungodly people. There's people that are deceitful, unjust, and they are ruling over me. They're oppressing me. My enemies have overcome and I feel like you have rejected me. And again, all of that continues to point us to the idea that he is in a place of exile. So I want to just camp out on this idea of exile for a moment if that word or idea is new to you, uh, to be in exile or to be an exile is basically to be removed from your, your home, the place that you know, the place that you're from, that home, to be removed from that and basically cast out into a new place or another land. So you're displaced from your home or reality and you're kind of thrown out into another place. You could think about it that, that exile is a place where things just simply are off, right? Like things are just not the way that they should be or the way that you are used to them being. They're not as they should be. The comforts of your home, your people, what you know, where you feel most at ease, all of that is taken from you and you're put into a foreign space where things just aren't quite right. Exile is where you are not home. And what happened most likely is this psalmist is in a place where uh, Israel actually was exiled from their land. They were oppressed by a people and they were taken into a new land. So they're living in this constant state of things not being off, things not being the way that they should be or not in their home land and they are in exile. Now, the reason that I'm taking kind of this morning to focus us in on this idea of exile is because it's actually a major theme throughout the whole Bible. Like, I know that we don't talk about it a ton, but, but that idea is actually a thread that runs through the entire Bible. And in fact, I would say that exile, if you think of the whole Bible as like a narrative, a story, right? And you think of any good story, kind of has a, a setting, a beginning to it, and then a major conflict, a, 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 clim- or a, a conflict that happens that then needs to get resolved. I think the Bible tells the story of the great conflict is the problem of exile. That really the whole Bible is telling us the story about a people who are exiled, who need to return home. And one of the ways I think we see that is because this exile for the psalmist or Israel is not actually the first exile we see in the Bible. The first exile happens in Genesis chapter three. So Genesis, it's the first book in the Bible. We're three chapters in. And so far, all you see is that uh, essentially the setting of a story. God creates the whole world. He creates Adam and Eve as the first humans to be with him. So he creates this garden. He says, you guys are here in this land. I will be with you. We'll dwell together and rule and reign together. But he gives them one command. He says, do not eat of this one particular tree. Well, if you know the story, they disobey God. It breaks this fellowship and communion they have with God. And then they are exiled. This is Genesis 3, verse 23 and 24. After they sin, it says, therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. Okay, so do you see the language of like casting out, sending out, driving out? The problem here is that disobedience to God means an exile from his presence. And I think that is the main problem of the Bible, that from that point on, the Bible's looking to resolve. God is working a plan to bring exiles home. Those who were cast out of his presence, he's bringing back into his presence. We see this later in Genesis, in chapter 11 and 12, we see this plan where God calls this man Abram and he says, I'm gonna create a people for you, with you, from you, and you are gonna have this land and I am gonna dwell with you. So he says, I'm gonna build a people, you're gonna get this land, I'm gonna have my presence there and that is a, the plan to begin to fix this problem Of exile, so he makes a covenant, a relationship with these people, and he says, "If you obey me, I'll be faithful to you, and we will have this like unified relationship." Well, the Old Testament says that all happens; they get the land, they form a covenant, but then God's people disobey again, so they go into exile, which is where our psalmist is, Uh, and you can find the story of this exile in Second Kings twenty-five. It's actually a really gruesome story. Uh, So I won't read all of it, but it ends in verse 21 saying, so Judah was taken into exile out of its land. So again, same thing. God is with his people. They disobey and they are exiled out of the land and away from his presence. Now, I know all of that can kind of seem Bible theology, history, and maybe a little bit distant, okay? And I I don't know anybody in the room who's actually ever been physically exiled from a land, but what the Bible often shows in physical form are shadows of spiritual and greater realities that we all face. Okay, does that make sense? So the Bible really isn't saying in these stories that the physical issue of being removed from the land is the actual problem. What the Bible's communicating is that humankind has to be exiled out of God's intimate presence with him, and that is a problem. Romans 8 says um, that the whole world is fractured now. It's not as it should be because exile has happened in the land. And Romans 5 says that every single human that has been born is born into this exile. We're born of Adam, and so we all, even if we haven't been physically exiled, are facing the effects of an exiled world, which means we now live in seasons of suffering where it feels like God's presence isn't around us. We live in moments of despair, wondering why our emotions and hearts feel like something is off, where there's a disconnect. We live in a world with horrific tragedies, catastrophic events and wicked corruption and oppression constantly. So when you feel that, when you start to feel like there's something in your heart that's just disconnected and it just feels like this isn't right, this isn't how it's supposed to be, the Bible would say that's an effect of exile. Or when you see that your physical body is breaking down or, or there's things in it that are not functioning as it should, the Bible says that's an effect of the exile. Or as you see horrible things going on around the world, the Bible says that's effects of the exile the core problem is that humanity has been exiled from the intimate presence of god and that has to be fixed because now we have a world that is broken and fractured with the effects which we see all around us which i think means if that is true you know last week we talked a lot about kind of the the actual moments of suffering, the moments of pain, uh, the moments of physical ailments that we have, If, if this is all true and exile is the great problem, that means that all those things are actually just symptoms of an even greater problem. Now, I will admit some of those things feel like pretty drastic symptoms and some of them are, but the Bible says none of those things are actually your greatest problem. All of those things are simply symptoms and effects of a greater issue And that means that you need a greater sense of healing or fixing than just a little bit of an emotional tweak or a physical healing. Uh, Close to 10 years ago now, um, I was a pretty new Christian and I was working at another church here in Omaha and I was like really new into ministry. And so there was a, a guy who came to the church and he came asking for prayer because he said he had a lot of physical pain that he had been in for a while. And if you know somebody kind of in that state where it's been a long time, like he just had the the face, the look of like dejection, kind of hopelessness, some frustration. Um, And so he came and he was just saying, hey, I just need prayer for healing. And so uh, there was a couple of us on staff that we kind of did the whole thing. We got around him, we laid hands. I think somebody had a little oil, so we put on oil. We're reciting scripture over him, we're praying. And I think like genuinely like trusting, like, okay, God, I think you can heal this man. So we spent a time just praying for him. And we end and he kind of gets up and he says, man, I think I'm feeling better. And he kind of walks around, he's moving around and he's like, I I think the pain is actually gone. And I saw him a week or two later and it was the same thing. He's like, I I think genuinely God has healed me. Like I don't have this pain anymore, which was the first time that I've ever actually been a part of something like that, where you're praying and it seems like God has actually healed, which is crazy. Uh, Until about five or six months later, and I saw him again, he came back to the church uh, and he had that same look on his face, just dejected and frustrated. And he said for the last couple of weeks, all of that pain essentially came back. And for me, again, I'm a, I'm a newer Christian. I, I'm a, like new in ministry. And this is a little bit disorienting because you know, we prayed and we asked for healing and it looked like God like restored health, like it was there. And it seemed like he was actually doing that. And now only six months later, all of that pain simply came back. And I think what, what that helped me see or the perspective shift that that did was that, yes, I believe that God actually in that moment healed that man. It seemed like he was in pain and that pain was taken away through prayer in the moment. And I believe that's probably what happened. The perspective shift was that even if God does that, and even if he never would have felt pain in that same way again, he was always gonna get sick again. He, he was always gonna have another problem. Because the the issue is in our world, we can have issues kind of get resolved or we can face some healing or we can feel some freedom and something else is going to happen. You know, like even last year with all of my stuff, I got a transplant and I was healthy again. And the reality that I've had to face is, but someday I'm gonna get sick again. Like someday I will die. Even if it wasn't two years ago, it will come. You know, as we face like emotional kind of healing and freedom from things, as great as that is, you are gonna face hardships again. Because what the Bible says is in a world plagued with the effects of exile, in God's kindness, we face some healing and we get some freedom, but the issue is still there. The, The ultimate issue is still at play in our broken world. And so I in no way am saying we shouldn't pray for healing. We shouldn't desire freedom from these things. I think absolutely we should. And God does do that at times. But that is not our ultimate problem. Like our ultimate issue isn't just a physical ailment because at some point that will end up defeating us. Like at some point, people are gonna do horrible things in the world. And even if you take away all the guns, you make all the laws in the world, like bad things will continue to happen because the Bible says there's a deeper problem at play. There's this exile that has happened that has caused the world to be broken and fractured. And until uh, one day comes in the future, we will always have these effects of exile so the psalmist here he 's being honest about the pain that he 's feeling the the issues that he 's feeling the the disease and, and the symptoms that are going on, but he 's going to ask for a greater hope he 's going to say that this place isn 't how it should be, and we need some fix to the issue of exile and that 's where he goes next in verses three and four he 's going to offer this prayer of hope, getting to the actual problem of exile. Listen to this prayer in verses three and four. He says, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God the psalmist is asking in exile, so he's still in the midst of exile, in the pain and darkness, he's asking, God, bring this exile home. He's longing for home. I mean, listen to how he says this. He says, send your light and truth to lead me. To lead him where? He says, bring me to your holy hill. That's Jerusalem, that's their home. He says, that is where you dwell. That's where the temple was, where God was with his people. He's saying, send me somebody, something to lead me back Home. And he goes on to say, if I could go back, then I'll go to the altar. We'll sacrifice, we'll worship you. We will have joy. God, I will praise you again. Just bring the exile home. And you know what? If you've read through the Old Testament, um, God actually answers that prayer for Israel. So if you remember back to the story, um, Israel gets exiled, but then they actually do get sent home. They do go back to Jerusalem. That prayer of Psalm 43, three and four is fulfilled in that moment. They're led back. They go to Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. They make their sacrifices and they conduct their worship services. Everything that this Psalm is saying, that is happening. But it wasn't exactly what they thought. It was the physical momentary fix with still a deeper need at play. The people came back but it still wasn't fully right. They were still actually oppressed by a foreign people. It, it worked and they were there and they were doing their services and the altar was built and praise was given and all of it still didn't fix this main problem. So while the prayer was partially answered in the Old Testament, in their return, the prayer still needed to be ultimately answered in the return from a spiritual exile. Now, um, We've talked about this a couple times. If you're new, what, what we've said is that if you look at the whole book of Psalms, so there's 150 different prayers or songs, um, it's easy to believe that that's basically just a random collection of poems. Like honestly, before the last couple of years, I always thought that. I thought Israel must've just had, these were the 150 best songs or prayers that they wrote. They just kind of got thrown in or maybe it's a chronological or I didn't really know, but somehow they all just got tossed in to this book. And actually, it's literally exactly the opposite. Uh, it's not random at all. It's actually highly organized. And one of the great examples of how we know that is actually this section of Psalms that we're in. So, so just listen to this. In the Psalm in the 40s, or we're gonna be this summer, uh, Psalm 42 and 43 are the prayers of a brokenhearted man in exile crying out to God. He's saying, God, restore your presence. We want salvation and your presence again. Psalm 44 is another cry for help. He's saying, hey, come to action. So the prayer is, God, do something. Give us your presence again. Psalm 44 says, do that action. Like, I wanna bring you into action and actually help us. Psalm 45 speaks of a king who would come for God's people and actually restore God with his people. And Psalm 46 through 48 is this rejoicing that God is with his people once again and that they are praising him. So you see what's happening. Even in this little section of the Psalms, we get the story of how that prayer is going to be answered. He prays, God, we need your presence again. And basically the rest of the next few Psalms are telling us exactly how that's going to happen. Uh, Jim Hamilton in his commentary on the Psalms explains it this way. It would appear then that the resolution of the Psalmist's difficulties awaits the coming of the promised King the salvation he will bring to God's people through the defeat of his enemies and the kingdom of God he will establish where all God's people will worship him. So this prayer of hope in Psalm 43 is ultimately answered in this section when God's king will bring God's people back to God's presence. That our only ultimate uh, answer to our problem of exile is God's king coming to save God's people from exile and bring them back into God's presence. So the question we should have for Psalm 43 is, who's the king? Right? Like, Who is this one that's actually going to do this? Who's the one that's going to solve our great problem? And lucky for us, the New Testament doesn't make us wonder It actually tells us, listen to some of these verses. Uh, So the, the psalmist, he's crying out in verse three, send light, send light to lead us back. In John 12, 45 and 46, Jesus says, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So the psalmist is saying, God, send us light to bring us out of this brokenness and darkness. Jesus says, the father has sent me as light to bring you into the light. Uh, he goes on. He says, the psalmist says, hey, um, send us truth. Like give us truth that will reunite us with God. And Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So again, he's saying, give us truth so that we can actually go back to you and be in your presence. And Jesus says, I have been sent as the truth so that you can now go back and be with God. Jesus is saying, I have come. He's actually been exiled from the heavens. He's come to earth so that he can take a people in exile and bring them now back to the presence of God. Verse four, the psalmist goes on and he says, once we actually get back, once we could be in God's presence, he says, we'll go to the altar. And right, now think about it again, what happens at an altar? You make your sacrifices. That, that's a whole Old Testament system. You come, you shed blood, you do your sacrifices over and over and over and over again. And in their minds, that's what helps make them right with God. Listen to Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tense, so he's saying, this is an eternal thing, not just a physical thing, this is the real thing. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So again, the psalmist is saying, hey, we know we still need a sacrifice. We need blood to be shed so that we can be made right with God and worship him. And Hebrews says that happened ultimately in Jesus. That for us, we don't have to continually go back and make up for our sins and try to make up for our sins and try to do the right things again to make up for our past. He says that we are saved alone by the blood of Jesus, that he came and he shed his blood so that we can be right by faith. Uh, The author of Hebrews goes on in chapter 10, to say every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You notice the imagery there? It's saying, hey, the priests always have to stand because they're always doing work. They're always offering more sacrifices. It never actually works. Anything that we do on our own can never actually make up for sins But when Christ came, he died once, he shed blood once. And then notice what it says, he sat down, which means his work is finished. The salvation, the redemption that we need is not this repeated sacrifice. It's a once and for all in the person of Jesus Christ. And notice in the Psalm, uh, the Psalmist says, when all of that happens, if God would do that, he says, then I will praise God. He will be my joy and I will get to worship him. And so he asks himself one more time, why am I cast down? Why am I in turmoil within me? Now, I do believe uh, that this time, so he said that twice in Psalm 42, this is the third one. And I do believe there's a little bit of a difference in how he says this. Uh, I think there's a, a genuine optimistic hope that he now has still in the midst of exile with a greater trust and hope that God is going to answer that prayer of hope. I think that what's happening here in Psalm 43 is this resolution that what he knew in his mind in Psalm 42 has now started to make its way into his heart. The preaching to himself, hope in God, hope in God, hope in God, now in 43 is starting to make its way into his heart where he can actually hope in God. Therefore, he asks, why am I down? Why am I discouraged? God is my salvation. God is the one who I will praise. God is the one who will bring us home. So church, let me um, just end a a little more practical or pastoral for a moment. Uh, I, I did say last week, I think there are times and seasons of life where we simply live in Psalm 42. Not much resolution, sadness, despair, frustration, uh, and I think God can actually take those seasons where what you know is not what you feel and you kind of preach to yourself and you, you sit in it. And that's how Psalm 42 ended. It was just in pain and in exile. But I think there's also times to move to Psalm 43. I think there's times to realize that exile isn't the end of the story. Suffering and brokenness is not the end of of the story. There is a time to move from preaching hope to your heart to actually experiencing hope in your heart, where you can move from actually getting your eyes off only your circumstances and on to the person of Christ who has worked in that way that he prayed for. That we can genuinely hope now because of what Christ has done. Now, the interesting thing for us as Christians today is we live in this kind of in-between age where we can look back and see, yeah, Christ came as the light. He came in exile to bring exiles home. He he did all this work. We are saved in him by his blood and yet it's not fully realized yet, right? It's this this in-between age where we're not looking forward, hoping that God might do something. We've seen what he's done in Christ, but it's not fully realized yet. We're still in this in-between where we know what Christ has done. We know that he has saved us and yet we still feel the effects of exile. That as long as we're in this world, we will have some freedom and some hope in Christ and some effects of exile that will consistently plague us. We still are in some ways exiles. Peter calls us that in his letter. Uh, He says that we are exiles awaiting a home. We're exiles who have been saved waiting to be fully saved. Because Christ secured our salvation in his first coming. He will deliver our salvation in his second coming. And this is what I think our eyes must be on. Uh, My wife and I were, right after this service, we're actually headed down to Kansas City and we are uh, going to a concert tonight. So we've been listening to some of their songs and one that's kind of a lyric that's stuck in my mind, especially on this uh, Psalm was this. It says, Dust to earth and ash to ocean. I'm not home till heaven opens. So that was so good. I'm just thinking, we, we come and we go. The world comes and it goes and it will fade. And we are not home until heaven opens. This is not our home that we are here as exiles awaiting the day that Christ actually finally and fully takes us from this place. That all the effects of exile that we've talked about now, the last two weeks, all the pain and the hurt and the tears and the brokenness and the death, all of that, Revelation says at the end of the Bible, all of that is what's gonna get fixed. That problem in Genesis three that is carried throughout the Bible that we are living in today will one day be fixed when Christ returns. That he will come and he's creating a new heavens and new earth and the best part about it in Revelation 21 is, it says, God will be with us. That presence that we have been disconnected from is now actually restored once and for all. And so when we ask, how does Spurgeon or how do people today, how do we endure? How do we keep moving forward? Where are our eyes? First Peter tells us, we get our eyes on eternity. We look as exiles today to the hope of what will come. And I think because of that, as sinners and sufferers, those who are exiles in this land saved by Christ, we can hope in God. We will again praise him. He is our salvation and he is our God. And one day that great ultimate problem that we live with the effects of, it will be fixed. We will feel his presence. We will face his presence. We will have it finally and fully forever. And therefore we can hope in God. Let's pray.